It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Marin Talks Money, the after show. This is where we unpack all the commentary you hear in our regular podcast for free. I'm Marin Somerset Webb. This week, John Stepick, senior reporter at Bloomberg and author of the Daily Money Distilled newsletter, joins me to discuss my conversation with Edward Chancellor, financial historian, journalist, investment strategist, and expert on everything to do with interest rates. John, you know, I really enjoyed talking to Edward. I've known Edward a long time. I've had lots of public conversations with him. And the worrying thing, and this is the worrying thing, is that I kind of agree with him on everything. I try not to because he's such a misery guts, but it's quite hard not to. He's so intelligent. He's so compelling. He has such a sweep of history behind everything that he says. You know, he's not just plucking random, random facts from the air like some authors. Um, he really knows what he's talking about and he's got thousands of years worth of, of history and data to, to back it up. And I listen to him speaking and all I can think is, yeah, I completely agree with you. Difficult, right? It is difficult. Um, and I agree with him as well. And oh, damn, I was hoping you wouldn't. <laughs> well, I know we, we all sort of swing Austrian in terms of economics. You know, you hear terms like capital misallocation and you know, okay, well, this, this is, you know, the kind of Austrian view. The only, the only thing to do then is to sort of try and push back against their own views and think about what the, what's, what's the kind of upside case or what is the potentially benign outcome here. Um, and I do think that's important because, you know, we, we have a lot of these um, end of the world moments in financial history. And most of the time, it's not actually the end of the world. And even 2008, which was kind of the closest thing that I guess we've got to the end of the financial world in a long time since the kind of Great Depression, maybe. Um, that that didn't end up with the sort of like cathartic moment. Um, and, you know, lots of people still sort of feel as if uh, there's some unfinished business there or whatever. And I suppose it's just worth thinking about, well, well how, how could this interest rate cycle have a pretty benign ending or at least a you know one where things go on as usual and actually nothing in particular blows up and I suppose well if you think about that there there's maybe two ways in which it could be okay and maybe the reality is that since 2008 consumers and businesses have actually deleveraged to a certain extent. In most countries they weren't. They are not as indebted as they were uh, at the peak in 2008. If you then accept that also the people who do have debts and the companies that do have debts have it on fixed rates for prolonged-ish periods and then 
that means they've got time to think before they take the hit, the financial hit. And they also have time for inflation to play a role in driving up wages and, you know, corporate incomes. So let's say that that happens. And so you get a gradual sort of like the pain keeps coming, but not in a, in a way that actually blows anything up. And then you've got the sovereign side, but the reality is that government balance sheets actually can take a lot of stress, particularly if they're all in it at the same time. It's like, it'd be one thing if the UK had roughly 100% debt to GDP and everyone else was, you know, hunky-dory and they were all on 20%. But we're not. We're all kicking around that area. And actually, I think if you look at the G7, I think the UK is actually below average. We're slightly better off in terms of debt to GDP. So maybe it just, maybe inflation washes it out over time. Which I, I guess, I mean, that does sort of still come down on Edward's side because that's financial repression. But you don't get that kind of, uh, you know, end of days moment. And maybe, just maybe, at the same time, we get the beginning of the productivity revolution we've been waiting for for so long. And that helps move things forward by pushing up GDP growth more than one might have expected and pushing up corporate growth of the better companies at least more than one might have expected. And that might act as a something of a cover for the companies operating in areas where capital have been misallocated. Yeah. And I mean, I'm really, really trying here. But I mean, maybe artificial intelligence will do more than uh, my imagination currently kind of runs to, really. On the other hand, maybe it is true that the state of disequilibrium or I mean I don't know if you've read Bernard Connolly's latest book we've got to get him on the podcast I am working my way through it at the moment and more in there about the what he calls a temporal disequilibrium I we've pulled pulled future growth forward with very low interest rates and uh, you know that can only end end badly and only end with financial crisis um you know, it's a it's a depressing read, but Connolly has a a good record, and he is someone who um, Edward reads as well. And uh, you know, they've they've looked at each other's work a lot, and they end up in the same place uh, that a, another financial crisis is really not very far away. That markets will collapse, central bankers will kind of give in and cut interest rates, asset prices will go up again, and you know, we're we're back where we were. There's no. There's no easy way out of this. We're just going to lurch from crisis to crisis to crisis as capital continues to be misallocated and that capital misallocation leads to financial crises, which central banks react to in uh, their usual rubbish way by creating new asset bubbles. And uh, in the end, I don't know, maybe the world does end in the end. I mean, that does feel... The, but the issue I have with that is, uh, well, apart from the fact it's monumentally depressing, is... Yeah, I, really, I, really depressing. I don't think that's politically sustainable. I think you get to a point where people get sufficiently fed up that, I mean, either something like, you know, nasty happens in politics, which is obviously what people are all panicking about just now. Um, but also, you know, if you think back to kind of Paul Volcker, the 1970s, um, eventually the kind of the, the, the cure of high inflation got much more painful than the cure of devastating recession. Um, and that kind of put a stop to to that because, like, it kind of the, the the political side sort of became too 
difficult to indulge the the easy answer of cutting interest rates all the time. Um, so I can see possibly that would happen at some point in the future to you know stop this. And but equally, you know, the geopolitical picture is messier than it has been for a long time, um, and that I find very uh, uncomfortable. I have to say, um, you know, I mean, me and you are kind of grew up in the 90s, late 80s, whenever things were actually genuinely getting better on that front to a quite spectacular extent. You know, the, the Cold War ending completely unexpectedly, regardless of what anyone says now, nobody saw the Berlin Wall falling, um, you know, six months before it happened. But now, you know, we're, we're, it feels like we're really going back the way badly on that front um, and to, you know, this might be just middle age, but to the extent it feels as if we squandered, you know, the kind of benefits of that era. Um, we totally did. Yeah. Totally. I, yeah. So, Absolutely. <laughs> spent all the money we saved that we didn't have to spend on, on defence. Mm. Didn't, uh, yeah, no, let's not get started on that. But that's it. So I think that's, that's, that's actually the thing that worries me more because I think that the financial side, oddly enough, companies still have enough freedom um, and individuals still have enough freedom to get by despite all of the mess mistakes that are made, you know, at the higher levels. But as soon as we're starting to get any actual kind of like shooting wars with, uh, you know, dangerous kind of enemies, then that that's not a that's a bad situation. And I think that's probably what I'm more worried about. Um, if everything else is in disarray, that's the thing that that kind of ends up causing all the trouble yeah the one the one one part of this comes back to that the one part of the interview with chancellor that i, I found very interesting is that about halfway through we're talking about when i'm saying to him you know what's going to happen next are we just going to it's just going to be slow burn misery for a decade or so as we try and work our way out of this is there going to be a big crisis and i know that his, his core case is that there is likely to be a financial crisis of, of some kind but one thing that he says is that this is becoming analytically his words more complicated but one thing I would say is that the crisis that we have been experiencing over the last 25 years are becoming analytically more complex. For instance, again, go back to the dot-com bust was you know, pretty simple. <laughs> you really had to be dumb not to understand how that was coming and how to analyze it. I think the credit crisis, the global financial crisis, was much more complicated with the um, structured credit and problems in subprime and collateralized debt obligations. I think the problem that we have today is not so much complex financial structures, um, but, the, but the fact that the low interest rates that prevailed for so long ha had such wide effects. The, I cite and he points out that if we go back to the dot-com dot .com bust, it was really simple. Um, Everyone could see it coming. You'd be an absolute idiot not to see that there was a massive bubble based on misallocation of capital and piles of cash being given to unbelievably stupid companies, etc. It'd be really, really stupid not to know that that was going to crash and crash big time. Um, of course, you couldn't quite get the timing right, and lots of people got the timing wrong. We short all those companies for far too long before they actually crashed. But the fact that they were going to crash is an absolute given. Um, but later crises, the credit crisis, the global financial crisis, all these things, much more complicated. The CDOs, the subprime, the structured credit stuff, all these really complicated financial structures. 
made it really complicated to analyze, complicated to see what was going to happen next. And so the, the core point I'm trying to make is that right now, anyone who tells you that they can see exactly what's going to happen, even us, John, even us, anyone yeah, who even thinks us. they can see exactly what is going to happen is very probably wrong because, I mean, um, Edward uses this wonderful phrase, interest rates get into all the cracks. And, you know, you can't even see some of the cracks until interest rates go up and then the push out starts. So you just don't know in this incredibly complicated financial environment where the nightmare is going to be, what's going what's gonna to start something, or if maybe nothing will start. And as you say, we just sort of slow burn through the misery for a decade, and maybe we have a huge productivity boost, and maybe company, man company managers are really uh, as brilliant as they often can be, and things turn out to be kind of fine. But we literally don't know. And that's the key thing for investors understanding that um, that no one really quite understands. And so you have to be really careful how you invest with a constant eye to the endless unknown, 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 unknowns. Yeah. And I suppose the, the, I suppose the irritating thing about all this is that when it then comes down to, well, what does this actually mean for your money? All it really means is, well, this is why you need to have a diversified portfolio, but also you know, you need to have something that, that takes geopolitical risk into account. So I guess the main difference is it's like when we say diversified, we don't actually mean 60-40 bonds, equities. We mean bonds, equities and some gold. <laughs> and probably, you know, think of cash as being a core allocation. I know. I mean, the thing is, these conversations are so interesting, aren't they? And particularly one with Edward, so interesting. Absolutely love talking to him. But in the end, the solution mm. is really quite boring. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I... for an investor you can't come out of this going god this is so exciting i'm going out to buy singaporean small caps although by the yeah. way i think they're quite cheap too someone's telling me the other day but you know you can't go out <laughs> with an exciting investment strategy you're just like oh i've got to be a bit diversified and you know japan because edward by the way is also a japan bull and i enjoyed that about him as well um because you know just agrees on everything <laughs> so i think you know that some of the headwinds for Japan were high valuations and then this period of deflation uh, and, and deleveraging that hurt Japanese margins and return on equity. And I think that was over 10 years ago. So that was our reason for being bullish 10, 12 years ago. And that's been more than vindicated, let's say. That's our kind of guest, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> by cheap stuff and, yeah. and gold. By Japan, by gold. I mean, these are things you and I have been saying for decades. He wasn't having um, any truck at all with Bitcoin. I think he thought it was a trick question. It was not a trick question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, yeah. Um, anyway, let's, we'll not, let's not have the Bitcoin chat again. We could do that another time. Oh, go on. <laughs> well, I, I still feel, I think it's interesting, a historian of, of money. And um, it's, you know, because it is, I think it is fair to say money is a social technology. Um, and... The idea that John, I love the way you prove to us that you read books. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, occasionally. John reads books. <laughs> One creeps in there, and uh, yeah, no, it's it's that thing. You think, well, you know, maybe, maybe I, I don't think I, I don't think Bitcoin is a scam. I think it's it's maybe niche, but it's definitely there's there's a technology there that that is for real, unless you know the world's greatest hackers have. Uh, managed to keep us so going. John, for... This is what we've learned about John today. John reads books and John's a money launderer. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this week's Marion Talks Money, the after show. 
This episode was hosted by me, Marin Zomzet Webb, alongside John Stefak. Thank you, John. It was produced by Sam Asadi, additional editing by Blake Mabels. Please review us. Please tell your friends. Thank you. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.